0: This morning's scripture reading is from John 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already You may be seated.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Before we begin, I think it'd be amiss, and I know we just prayed for our E90 moment, but I think it would be amiss not to acknowledge what's happening on the other side of the world. Um, The images coming out of Ukraine are sobering heart-wrenching, and in some ways, very scary, to say the least. And I'd be lying if I said my heart hasn't been really heavy the last week or so. And in moments like these, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? What can we do? Well, I think the most effective thing that we can do is pray. <laughs> and so I'd just like to start out our time together with a brief prayer. So if you'd just bow your heads with me, let's, let's pray. God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all of those who fear for what the day will bring, for those who fear for their lives, for those who fear for the lives of family members or the lives of their countrymen. So we pray for those in fear that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those who have power over war or peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions. Above all, we pray for all of your precious children, God, who live in risk in fear. And we pray that you would hold them, that you would protect them. We pray in the name of Jesus, who in holy scripture is called the Prince of Peace. Have mercy on Ukraine and have mercy on us, Lord. We love you. Amen. Thanks for praying with me there, friends. There really is no easy transition from that, so let's just go ahead and dive right in. The scripture passage we have before us this morning is what you heard read, might be the most well-known part of the Bible today, right? I mean, you've probably seen John 3.16 on billboards as you drive down the highway, or yeah, there we go, got some laughs on that one, or on a throw pillow on your grandma's couch, maybe, or maybe even on a certain football player's eye black. Uh, Some of you might know who that is. Whether or not you are familiar with the Bible, or whether or not you grew up in the church, or if you are now checking out the Christian faith for the first time, or you're back for the first time in a long time, John 3.16 is very likely somewhat familiar to you. And because of that, I'm about to say something that might be a terrible way to start out a sermon. I'm not sure I have anything new to say to you today about that verse specifically. Don't leave yet, please. (laughs) Don't walk out the doors yet. If you have been familiarized with this verse, I'm not sure I'm going to tell you anything about John 3.16 you don't already know. I don't have a revolutionary new take on the Greek. I don't have some wild translation for you that makes it fresh. But I don't think that's a problem. Actually, the most beautiful thing about John 3.16 might be the fact that this verse is a well-worn path. This verse is a trail that some of us have walked thousands of times. We've become accustomed to it. We've seen the sights of it. Maybe we even feel at home with it. So in John 3:16, there's no trick to it. There's no hidden linchpin. John the Evangelist, when he was recording this verse and putting it into his gospel, he wasn't thinking that this was some kind of riddle. No, these verses before us, they're, they're not vague. they're direct. They're not opaque. They're transparent. And the beauty of these verses, John 3.16 in, in, in particular, is its simplicity. And as I was sitting with this verse, I realized there's one particular thing that this passage does for us. And this is regardless of whether you are new to the Christian faith or if you've been a Christian for like 30 years. It does the same thing. Here's what it does. And this is gonna sound intense. John 3.16 is the God-illusion destroyer. That's what I'm calling it. The God-illusion destroyer. Sounds intense, doesn't it? What do I mean by that? John 3.16, it eliminates any illusions. And what I basically mean is misunderstandings or wrong images. It eliminates wrong images that we have of God. If this passage does anything, it tears down our ideas of God when we try to make him into our own image or define him with human terms. You see, within our human nature, we have this like chronic illness where we try to express God in manageable ideas. We try to reduce him to human dimensions. Ultimately, when we do that, we find a God made in our image with our own human understanding. We don't realize we've created a different God in our minds who is limited by our own human desires and terms. And I'll give you an example. Maybe you think God just wants you to do the right thing. God is the big man in the sky who's happy with you when you're a good person, and he's mad at you when you're a bad person. That's an illusion. Here's another. Maybe you are in a place where you've figured you've seen what the Christian God has to offer. You've seen it. And actually, there's a subtle discontent that has come with that. You have this question that arises within you every once in a while, and this question is this Is this enough? Is this what this God really offers? And is it it enough? These are two examples of God illusions, and this verse invites us to drop those and to see God for who He actually is. This passage is core to healing our image of God. How does it do it? How does it do that? Well, it does it in three movements. First, it helps us see God for who he actually is. In this passage, John tells us who God is and what he loves. Second, because we then see him for who he is, it helps us see ourselves for who we are. And then third, it leaves us with a simple invitation from God. So it helps us see God for who he is. And in light of that, we can see ourselves for who we are. And then third, it leaves us with an invitation. So let's start by seeing God for who he is. Look with me at the first two verses of our passage, John 3, 16 through 17. They should be up on the screen behind me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what does God love? Well, it's clear, he loves the world. In the original language, this part can literally be translated as, this is how God loves the world. So John is reminding us that he's, he's talking about these verses that came before, and he's referencing this idea that the Son of God might be lifted up. When John uses that phrase, lifted up, he means the crucifixion of Jesus. So he's saying, this is how God loved the world, that the Son of God was lifted up on the cross. Here's the first half of John's point. The cross, which was the ultimate goal of Jesus' mission mission, it finds its grounds, its purpose, its motivation, fully and completely centered in God's love. It's 100 percent grounded in God's love. And he doesn't leave it at that. Who is God's love for? It's for you and for me, for the world. And if you glance forward to verse 19, you'll see that John has some pretty intense words for the world (laughs) and the predicament that we find ourselves in as humans. He describes people as lovers of darkness. That's pretty intense. But this is the second half of John's point. God's love that he has shown the world through Jesus, this love has nothing to do with our inherent goodness or loveliness. Let me say that in a different way. Jesus is Jesus, when he goes to the cross, that has nothing to do with us being deserving of that action. And this is where we sometimes get tripped up. It's where we can have a misunderstanding of God. Why? Because the love of God is so radically different than our natural human way of loving. So take me for example, I'm Ben, I'm a human being, a man. I'm drawn to love things that I find appealing to me. For whatever reason, I love rock music, I love reading, I love the ocean, I could go on. But essentially it's simple. I'm most attracted to particular things that have inherent loveliness in them. I'm drawn to those things. And this is the same thing with people. Like when I love people, take my family or my best friends, I love them because of what I find really lovely in them. I see all of that beauty in who they are as a person, and I'm drawn to that. Like, that's the nature of loving, right? It's the nature of how humans love. We typically love things, and we love people that are most lovely to us. We see it, and we're drawn to it. Here's the rub. God's love is not like that. God's love is very, very different. Here's a quote from The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus by Brennan Manning. Now, unlike ourselves, the Father of Jesus loves men and women not for what he finds in them, but for what lies within himself. It is not because men and women are good that he loves them, nor only good men and women that he loves. It is because he is so unutterably good that he loves all persons, good and evil. He loves the loveless, the unloving, the unlovable. He does not detect what is congenial, appealing, attractive, and then respond to it with his favor. In fact, he does not respond at all. The father of Jesus is a source. He acts. He does not react. He initiates love. He is love without motive. Let me put it more simply. God's very nature is love. That's who he is. Later in one of his epistles, John says it this way. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. So when, we, when John says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, it has nothing to do with us, our being deserving of that love. It has everything to do with the God who is love. And that's important to try to wrap our heads around. If we don't, we'll be left with an image of God that doesn't correspond to who he actually is. Do you think God will love you any better when you become better? Are you pretty convinced that deep down, God is disappointed in you? And it's only when you make yourself better and more lovable that he will then love you more. If you believe that, then you don't understand God and his love. God will not love you any better when you become better. He loves you just as you are right now. If you don't care that God loves you, he still loves you. If you don't feel like God loves you, he loves you. If you don't feel like you're worthy of God's love, he loves you. I'm going to make this awkward for a moment. If that wasn't awkward enough for you, if you don't say I love you often, then that might be, that might be awkward. But I'm going to make this awkward for a second. Bear with me. God loves you because he loves you, 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 because that is what he is like. It is his very nature to love, and his love is unchanging. That's the final word. God's love is based on who he is. It's his very nature. That's all. And because his love is based on his nature and not ours, that's what makes us secure. There are so many people, either Christians or people who are trying to understand the Christian faith, who are carrying with them the heavy burden of trying to deserve God's love. Is that you? God's love is a free gift. It stems directly from who he is. It's precisely why John continues in verse 17 by saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not come to the world through Jesus in order to lay on us a heavy burden. God came to take the burden away. He came to save us. And He truly means that, where He is doing the saving and we're not saving ourselves. So if you believe that God's love is contingent on you and your performance, that's a heavy burden if you feel like you're just performing and you're exhausted, if you feel like you're trying to do good enough that your conscience is then able to rest, then you are con- but then you're just constantly kind of failing yourself, then let me remind you, when God looks at you, he sees someone that he loves. God said through his son Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. That is Jesus' invitation to come follow him. And you can tell him that you're coming with him and that you want to experience God's everlasting love and everlasting life. Let me share with you one more quote from The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus by Brennan Manning God does not condemn, but forgives. The sinner is accepted even before he repents. Forgiveness is granted to him. He need only accept that gift. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the love story of God with us. It begins with unconditional forgiveness. The sole condition is trusting faith. Christianity happens. This thing this, this thing called Christianity happens when men and women experience the unwavering trust and reckless confidence that comes from knowing the God of Jesus. There is no reason for being wary, scrupulous, cautious, or afraid with this God. As John writes in his first letter, in love there can be no fear, but fear is driven out by perfect love because to fear is to expect punishment. And anyone who is afraid is still imperfect in love. What is John saying in these first two verses? He's saying that God loves you. Why does he love you? It's because of who he is. That is who he is. He expressed his love through Jesus on the cross. And the whole point of that is to free you to join him in his everlasting love and everlasting life. Will you do that? Will you join him there? I mean that feels like a sermon in and of itself, doesn't it? <laughs> but John keeps going. John doesn't stop there, he keeps going. Look with me at verse 18, verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. And the verse actually keeps going, but I stopped it there because I wanted to fit everything on one slide. What does John mean when he says that people love the darkness? I'll be honest, I don't think he means that he thinks everyone is just obsessed with doing evil things. I don't think that's what he's saying here. What John has been doing since the beginning of the gospel, if you've been with us for a while, you know we've been in the gospel of John for a minute now. So what he's been doing since the beginning of his gospel is he's playing on our, this like physical experience we have of light and darkness. And he's actually doing that as a metaphor. And what I mean by that is he's using light and darkness as a metaphor for very real, concrete, spiritual realities that we experience. So when he says that there's this spiritual reality of darkness that we experience... What he is saying is that our sin is our experience of spiritual darkness. That's what he's saying. John is not necessarily saying that we're just completely obsessed with doing the most evil things. No, he's saying it's our natural propensity to stay in our sin. In other words, we love the darkness. It's our nature to love darkness, to stay in darkness to stay in our sin and not move into the light. John said it this way, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. That's what he says. So he's answering this question of what we really love. That's what he's answering. And he's saying what we actually really love is the darkness. That's what we love. This is what I say to the people downtown. I say, I've been a pastor for a good 10 minutes now. That's what I say. Well, I've been here for three years, uh, a little over three years, and it's been awesome. Uh, I've, I've, I, I really love my job and what I do. And I've, I've been here for over three years, and one of the things that has been a great joy for me is having spiritual conversations with people. I love it. Christians, non-Christians, it's, it's so much fun. Um, and in my short time as a pastor, the greatest challenge I have seen, me, the greatest challenge I have seen to the Christian faith is not an intellectual one. Often people can intellectually assent to a belief in God. That's not very difficult to get to. It's not a big leap for them. The greatest challenge to faith that I have seen most broadly is a moral one. The big leap for people is the moral nature and accountability that comes with following Jesus. That can feel like a really big leap. G.K. Chesterton once said it like this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left untried. We love to stay in our sin. We love the darkness. And maybe you're wondering why. Like, why do we love? Why do we love the darkness? And here's what I came up with. It's not just me. I didn't just invent this. I think it's very, very biblical, and I'm going to get there, okay? But this is what I came up with. This is why I think we love the darkness. The darkness provides us something. The darkness provides us a space to hide. Go with me here. Do you know what the, we really believe as people born into darkness? Do you know what we really believe? Like what is our core belief? We really believe, each of us, as those born into darkness, that no one will ever really love me and my bad. That is our core, deepest belief and fear. No one is ever really going to love me in my unloveliness. No one's going to walk with me into that place of darkness, into that part of who I am, and see it and really love me there. And because we don't actually believe that, because we don't, you know what we do? We hide. We hide in darkness. Darkness offers us safety, it offers us control. And in, it's in the darkness we hide from God, we hide from others, and sometimes even ourselves. And what keeps us there is this. What keeps us in the darkness is shame. The whole thing about hiding that I've just described, hiding and shame, it's in Scripture. It's the picture that Scripture gives us. Let me take you back to the very beginning of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. What is the last thing that is perfect in Eden? That is the first thing undone in the fall. Maybe you know. The last thing that is perfect in Eden was that they are naked and what? Felt no shame. Then when Adam and Eve, they sinned and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did they do? They realized they were naked. They covered themselves. And they were ashamed. And they hid from God. Shame keeps us in hiding. You see there are things in our hearts and in our lives that we really want to keep in darkness. We would rather hide them away. These are the hidden parts of our heart. These shadowy places of our hearts, this is where we store things we don't want others to know about. We don't want, we don't want to bring them to God. We want to ignore them even for ourselves. They bring us shame. And so we store them in darkness. And to move into the light, what it feels like, it feels like exposure. Moving into the light means potential for rejection, too. Because we don't ultimately believe that someone would choose to love those parts of me. That's what we believe. That's what we fear. And I think that there are many people who have ultimately rejected Jesus out of fear of exposure. Out of fear that Jesus might ask them to give up something that they hold really dear. When John is talking about loving the darkness, this is ultimately what he's talking about. We love our sin, and we love to stay hidden. It's in our nature just to refuse to bring, to refuse to bring our full selves to God and then move into the light. So if you ever find yourself really loving darkness, that might be a strange thing. If you, I feel like I'm loving darkness. Um, if you feel like you're hiding is what I mean. If you feel like you're in that place of hiding, there's something you need to be reminded of. You need to remind yourself of this too. And that something is how John begins our passage. God is love. And he sent his son to be lifted up. Why? Not to condemn you. We are already condemned because of ourselves and of our love of darkness and in our state. No, God sent his son to the cross that we might be saved into experiencing God's everlasting love and his everlasting life. The light shouldn't be threatening. The light is God's love for you. The light is his mercy for you. Walk into it. It's better than the darkness. So John started out by telling us that God is love. And then he moved on to telling us what we love, right? Right? which is the darkness. And then John makes one final move. Actually, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to come into the light. That's the invitation. Look with me at verses 20 through 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John's invitation is clear. Come into the light. Come into the light. It's where things are true and good and lovely and grace filled. And as we finish our time together, I think the most helpful thing I could do is to help make sense of this invitation is just to walk through three kind of diagnostic questions to help you respond in a practical way. What does it mean to come into the light? Well, these questions should help us understand that. Like, practically, what does it mean to join God in the light? Here's the first question. But it starts off with a statement. I just wanted to repeat this. I wanted to repeat this statement. There is a God who loves you. <laughs> he loves you. Have you embraced him with a saving faith? Saving faith in Jesus is essential to experiencing God's everlasting love and his everlasting life. And I know we make this saving faith idea about a particular singular moment in our lives, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I wonder if a better way of understanding that at times is by asking ourselves simple questions as we continue on in our journey with Jesus, if we already know we have that. And those questions are, what what does my heart love most right now? Where do I find my security? Who or what am I ultimately trusting in right now? Obviously, we know the right answer to those questions, right? (laughs) But those questions invite us to take a look at what we really, deeply, truly desire. Is our deepest desire for Jesus, is our deepest desire that Jesus gives us something we want? Is our... is what we deeply want, Jesus. Hopefully that makes sense. I'll mention this too. A saving faith never stays hidden. It just bleeds out of us. It has to. God's, the movement of God's love is always outward. So a heart that is being regenerated by the Spirit always shows itself. It becomes evident in our transformed hearts and in our desires. And I also believe that a saving faith points us to a spiritual community like this, what we have here. We need each other. Faith in Jesus is inherently a communal faith. We cannot do it alone. There's no lone wolfing the Christian faith. Just not possible. We need our spiritual family with us. If you have more questions about what a saving faith looks like, feel free to talk to one of us on the pastor team, talk with Nathan. We'd love to talk with you. The second question is this. Where where are you loving darkness? Darkness. Kind of a strange question. Sometimes we just need to take a good look and ask ourselves, where are we hiding? Another way of asking this, maybe that's a little bit more palatable, is what are we keeping from God? What am I keeping from God? What do I not want Him to touch? Does it mean confession? Does it mean changing patterns of behaviors? Does it mean forgiving someone? Does it mean no longer ignoring injustice and to begin to care for the poor and for the vulnerable? What in our lives are we keeping from God? The third and last question is this one, and it's going to seem strange at the outset, I promise you. It's going to seem strange, and then I'm going to try to explain it. How are you medicating your life? How are you medicating your life? If you have a pulse this morning... (laughs) We live in a stressful world, and you know that. <laughs> we have stressful jobs. We have stressful situations outside of our jobs, in our families, in our friends. We live in a stressful world. That's why, that's why sociologists call our age the age of anxiety, right? We just We just live in this water of stress. My point with that, this question, is that we might not have any large areas of hiddenness. I could have been saying that, and you're like, well, I don't really feel like I'm like really hiding many things, but we might simply, we might simply be medicating ourselves with different things to dull our heartaches, to push aside griefs, to cope with the losses and the pains of our lives. How do we medicate ourselves when we encounter hard things? When we live with stress? Is it with pleasures? Is it with more things? Is it with just a ton of distractions? Or is it with relationships that will not ultimately bring wholeness into our lives? Jesus does not promise to spare us from suffering and difficulties, right? But what he does do is offer us his spirit to give us hope and strength so that we can lean into him and his everlasting love and everlasting life instead of medicating ourselves, in our own ways. Hopefully these diagnostic questions just help you to guide you into fully embracing God's invitation to come into the light, to join Him in the light. It's better. Again, it's where things are good and true and lovely. As we close, let me remind you just where we've been. John says in our passage, God loves you. He loves you. He will not love you any better when you become better. He came to save you from the darkness that you love, and instead of that darkness, offer you everlasting life that begins with him now by embracing his everlasting love and then coming into the light, walking with him in the light. Will you respond to him? Will you respond to him? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that your, your Bible, Holy Scripture, is not just black words on white pages, but it's the words of life. We praise you for that. We praise you for your love, Father, that you showed through your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to hearts and minds, even now, that people would sense your love for them, that they would be overwhelmed by your love for them. Father, call us into the light. Welcome us in there. Keep us there. We want to experience the way of your everlasting love and everlasting life. We love you, Lord. Lord. We love you, Father. We love you, Son. We love you, Holy Spirit. And Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of your Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.